everybody. Good morning, and welcome to Christ Community Chapel. Surprise! I'm here. <laughs> Thanks. Welcome those of you over in the sanctuary. Surprise to you, too. Uh, those of you over in the sanctuary, you are going to experience an East Hall morning. Those of you here in East Hall are going to experience a little bit of a sanctuary morning. So if this is freaking you out, you have like two minutes to run over there or for you guys to run over here. But welcome. Really glad that you're here. Let me start with some family news. Uh, Andy Hoffman has led worship in East Hall for the last seven years. Andy's actually had two jobs here at our church during that time. He is also one of our leaders on our ministry team to students. And so uh, we knew that having two jobs was going to be unsustainable over time, especially when Andy started to have a family. And now that he and his wife, Becca, have had Judah, we had to sit down with Andy and say what and talk about what his future looked like. It was really interesting to watch Andy struggle with uh, two ministries that he really uh, loves. Uh, But he finally decided that the best way to serve Jesus and to serve CCC was to focus on student ministries, which means that in June he will be transitioning out of leading worship here at East Hall, and that responsibility will fall to Tory Grubbs. And Jim Bossler will be over here to help a couple times a month. Uh, But I want to take this time to let you know about that transition and also thank Andy for uh, burning the candle at both ends for so long and for the way that he has uh, done this. So uh, thanks, Andy. Appreciate that. All right, so last week I was in Uganda, Africa, and I had a chance to visit with Sam Tushabi. Uh, We have supported Sam as a church for like eight years. Sam has an amazing ministry in Uganda to like 3,000 children. And at one part of the trip, we were uh, visiting a medical clinic that Sam has to minister to the poorest of the poor. If you've ever been to a medical clinic like that, there's a long line of people holding sick babies, and there's crying and everything. And we were touring the little medical clinic. And the director of the medical clinic, at one point in our tour, he said, uh, oh, by the way, all the medicine that we're able to give to these people is provided by a church in the United States called Christ Community Chapel. And when he said that, somebody in our group said, hey, this guy, and he point, they pointed at me and said, this guy is Joe Coffey. He represents Christ Community Chapel. And if I could do something for you this morning, if I could give you a gift, it would be to place you in Jinja, Uganda at that moment. And that you could see the director's face when he looked in my face because his face was so filled with gratitude and affection. And that gratitude and affection wasn't meant for me, it was meant for you. And so I want you to know that what you do matters. What you give matters. Keep being generous. Generosity makes us kinder, makes us better. Generosity is like medicine to our souls, even as we seek to help heal the deep brokenness in our world in Jesus' name. So thanks. Thanks for what you've done in Uganda. All right. We are in a series right now called Only Jesus. And we're looking at uh, some of the things that only Jesus offers. We've talked about how only Jesus offers joy and life. And then last week, light. And this week, we're going to look at how only Jesus offers sight. 
And all these uh, messages are coming from the Gospel of John, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 9, or you can look it up on our app, or you can just wait for it to come up on the screen. But I'm going to read John John chapter 9, verses 1 through 11. This is what it says. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It's he. Others said, No, but it's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. This is God's word. It's a great story. It goes all the way to the end of the chapter, 41 verses. And the reason it takes so long is that this man was, he was pulled into this controversy that was swirling around Jesus. Because the religious leaders had already decided that they were going to reject Jesus' hook, line, and sinker. And so anything that reflected positively on Jesus, they immediately tried to discredit so they called this guy in, and they said to him, basically, Listen, we know Jesus is a bad guy. So uh, we've heard these things. We know that can't be true. So tell us what really happened. And this guy told them a couple of times, and they wouldn't accept his word. And finally, he says this. It's a great line. He ends up saying, listen, I don't know much about Jesus, but this is what I know. I was blind, and now I see. I was blind, but now I see. It's a great story, so if you have time, sometime uh, later on today, read it through its entirety or read it tomorrow. It's worth the read. But I want to focus just on the first 11 verses because the thing that struck me was that Jesus wasn't just trying to give sight to this man who was born blind. He was trying to give sight to his disciples because his disciples thought they saw clearly, but they didn't have a clue. And so Jesus is going to help them see what he sees, because only Jesus can offer sight. And this is what I mean. So that the disciples are walking along with Jesus, and they see this man who's blind. And the whole story begins with a question, and it is the question. It's the question that every human being asks. It's the question that haunts every single person who has ever lived. It's a question that either has haunted you in the past or will haunt you in the future. This is what happens. The disciples start by saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? They're giving Jesus a choice between option A or option B. They're giving the two leading theories about suffering, and they're saying, which one do you subscribe to? But there's a question behind that question, and the question behind that question is the question, and that question is why? Why? They see this man who is blind, and they say, Hey, Jesus, can we ask you a question? Why is he blind? 
Why is my life not what I wished it would be? Why did my mom die or my friend or my child? Why is my life a wreck? Why is this guy blind? Because if you can answer that question, maybe you can answer the question for me and why I hurt so badly and why I feel so beat up. When I was in college, um, in our dorm one night, we decided to have game night. We, we went to the lounge and we moved all the furniture out of the way. We made this kind of a boxing ring. And uh, we did what we called uh, blind pillow fights, which means we took two guys and we, uh, we blindfolded them. And then we gave them pillows. And we rang a bell. And then they went and tried to beat each other up. I was going to have a pillow and swing it around, but I was afraid I would knock everything off the stage. At one point in the night, we had a freshman come into the ring along with an upperclassman. And then uh, we blindfolded them both. And then right before we rang the bell, we uh, took the blindfold off the upperclassman. (laughs) It was brutal. (laughs) And the freshman, the poor freshman, he had no idea why he was getting hit so much. And so accurately, right? And sometimes that's the way it feels going through life. You get hit a few times and you end up not knowing why or where the next one's coming from. And Jesus comes and he says, I can make you see. I can take the blindfold off and help you see the why question a whole new way. In this passage, there are three answers to the why question. Why pain? Why suffering? Why do we hurt? And Jesus says two of those answers are wrong. There are two ways to be blind. There's only one way to really see. And let's start with the two ways to be blind. The disciples see this man who is suffering and they say, Jesus, is it because A, he did something? Is it his fault or is it someone else's fault? Those are the two main theories. Those are the two theories that are still around today. The two theories that you and I usually bounce back and forth to when something bad is happening to us. Let me look at, let's call it theory A, that it's somebody else's fault, that uh, the responsibility when you say, why is this happening? You blame someone else. That is a very common thing. You find a scapegoat. Parents are still a good choice. Why is my life so messed up? It's my parents' fault, or it's my spouse's fault, or it's my employer's fault, or it's my coach's fault, or my kid's coach's fault. We find someone to blame. And what happens then is is what we become angry. That's one of the ways that you know that you're choosing option A as far as trying to understand why you're in pain is that you are full of anger. It means you are saying, I don't deserve this. Someone else is responsible for this. And as a nation, we are getting more and more angry because we are becoming more and more a nation of victims who say our problem is not here, it's out there. And uh, listen, when you become a Christian, that doesn't necessarily help. Because what happens when you become a Christian and you go through suffering, sometimes you have the ultimate scapegoat. You get to blame God. You say, God, I don't know, I don't understand, I didn't deserve this, why are you doing this to me? And I know you can be a Christian and choose that option, because I did that for two years when my little brother died. And maybe you're there right now. That's the first option. Second option is the disciples offer is that maybe it's not their fault, maybe it's his fault. 
And if you're that kind of person, that means that you look around at the different things that are happening and you take responsibility. You're the kind of person that says, if, if I was a better mom, my child wouldn't be on drugs. If I was a better Christian, then God would answer my prayers and help the people that I pray to for him to help. If only I was better. And if option A is characterized by anger, option B is characterized by crushing guilt. And if you're here and you're in pain, many times you bounce between the two, between being angry one minute and feeling guilty the next. So the disciples go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, you know, which one's right? And these theories have been around for a long time. You know, even the book of Job in the Old Testament is the longest kind of treatise we have on suffering in the Bible, really, in all of antiquity. Job, you know, goes through a tremendous amount of suffering. And then his friends come to him. And his friends' first thing is, what did you do? What did you do to deserve this? You must have done something horrible. Look at your pain. Look at your suffering. And Job says, no, I didn't do anything to deserve. I don't deserve this. Right? And then Job gets mad at God. The, The friends say, it's your fault. Job says, it's God's fault. Then God shows up at the end of the book. And he says to Job, Job, you're wrong. It's not unjust that you are suffering. And then the friends think, oh, well, if that's not that option, then we're right. And God turns to his friends and say, hey, buddy, you guys are wronger, right? And God's really mad at them because God's trying to show them that our most common answers to the why question are both wrong. And that's why Jesus says what he says. His disciples say, hey, who sinned? Why is this guy suffering? Why does suffering happen? Is, it out, is, the, is the, the fault, the credit out there, or is it in here? And Jesus says, neither. Verse 2, it says that uh, Jesus' disciples and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says, you Neither of those are right, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And of course, the big question is, what does that mean? What is Jesus trying to tell us? Well, I think Jesus is telling us a bunch, but let me just focus on three things. That Jesus tells us about suffering to try to open our eyes to the only way to see the why question the way he sees it. Okay, first thing is this. Bad things happen, and this is the reason. Jesus says, and the whole Bible says, that all suffering is the result of sin. All suffering is the result of sin, but not all suffering is the result of personal sin. All right, let me say that again. If you're going to miss everything else in this message, don't miss this. This is really important. All sin, the Bible teaches that all suffering is the result of sin, but not all suffering is the result of personal sin. And this is what I mean. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates the world. And he creates a world that is absolutely perfect. It is wonderful. A few weeks ago, we talked about the Hebrew word shalom, which means a fullness, a completeness, a flourishing of life. That's what God created, which is why after every part of creation, he would say, this is good. This is good. God created something that was absolutely wonderful. No pain, no suffering. And then Adam and Eve decide to rebel against God. And at that moment, when sin entered the world, so did pain and suffering. It's like uh, I, I heard this image. Maybe this will help you. It helped me. It's like uh, if you had a beautiful, exquisite 
clock. One of those clocks where you can see inside and you can see all the gears moving just in perfect harmony. Like every time a cog would move, the other cogs would move and it's just going click, 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 click. Like in absolute precision and perfection. And there in the center of that clock is a center cog and all the other cogs kind of move off that center cog. Right? That's the way God created the world. God created this exquisite world. It was supposed to be absolutely harmonious the way it worked. And in the center, the center cog was humankind. It was dependent on us. We were made in the image of God, put in dominion over the earth so that everything would work. And as long as we stayed exactly where we were supposed to stay, then everything would work just perfectly. But in a clock like that, if you could take that center cog and that center cog could shove its way up higher in the clock than it should be if that ever happened in that clock you would hear a grinding and a crunching and a groaning and if it was a cartoon you would see like springs going spring like that like springing out of the clock because it'd be ruined and that's exactly what God says in Genesis chapter 3 to Adam and Eve God says oh look what you've done Now nature will never work the way I intended it to work. Now your reality will never be what I wanted it to be. Because now you will have death and destruction and disease and decay. And that's not what I wanted for you. And from now on, you are going to be fight against being self-centered in all your relationships, which means that every single one of your relationships will have tension and struggle at different times. Your, your relationship with your parents or with your children, with your sisters, with your brothers, with your friends, with your spouse, every relationship, because you will try to get them to serve you instead of you serving them. In your relationship with me, you will constantly be, be trying to switch places with me. And instead of serving me joyfully, you will demand that I serve you. All suffering is a result of sin. And so... As a believer in the Bible, as a a follower of Jesus, I can never raise my fist at God and say, I don't deserve to suffer. I don't deserve this. And if you think, oh, what was Adam and Eve's fault? Listen, then if you have ever raised your fist against God and said, I don't deserve this, like I did when my little brother was killed, what I was saying to God is, I demand that you carve out a place in the messed up clock of this world for me and everyone I love so that we don't ever experience death or disease or destruction or decay. And what I was doing even in making that demand was switching places with God and saying, God, you serve me. I don't serve you. So for a Christian, for a follower of Jesus, option A of saying, listen, I don't deserve this. It's somebody else's fault. It's taken away. But Jesus goes on to say that all suffering is not a result of personal sin. And the reason that Jesus says that, this is the wonder of Jesus, because Jesus says in verse 4 that he's going to go work the works of God. And when Jesus works the work of God, that's going to the cross and being crucified and then being resurrected. And he does that to forgive you and me of our personal sin. Which means that whenever something bad is happening in your life, it's never because God is punishing you for your personal sin. Right? That can't be the case. That's 
1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Great verse that says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That verse says that God is faithful and just, not faithful and merciful. That God is faithful and just. Why is it just for, for God to forgive your sin? Because Jesus paid for your sin. It'd be unjust for God to punish Jesus for your sin and then turn around and punish you for your sin. So the disciples asked Jesus, which is it? Is it A, that he didn't deserve it, that it was somebody else's fault, or is it B, is it his fault and God is punishing him? And Jesus says, neither, neither. If you're a follower of Jesus, you don't ever say, because you know why pain and suffering has come into this world and how it came into this world, you never will say, I don't deserve any death, destruction, disease, or decay. And you also don't say, I'm being punished for my sin by God. Because Jesus says, I took that punishment for you. And that brings me to the second thing that Jesus is teaching in this passage, try to open our eyes to why suffering happens, is that all suffering has a purpose. If you're a follower of Jesus, all suffering has a purpose. That's what he says in verse 3. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So that the works of God might be displayed. The question is, what does that mean? Uh, Years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to go to Florence, Italy. And the one thing I wanted to see when I was in Florence was uh, Michelangelo's statue of David. Because it's this magnificent sculpture. It's 17 feet high, carved out of a single piece of marble. It's considered maybe the greatest piece of sculpture anyone has ever made. So we went to see it, and it was everything that I hoped it would be. It's just absolute perfection. It's amazing. But it's uh, it's at the end of a hallway, kind of a corridor, and all the lights are on that. But as you walk toward it, like I did, you were flanked by other sculptures. And one of the sculptures that I stopped and looked at was a sculpture by Michelangelo called Atlas Slave. And in Atlas Slave, it's a sculpture. It's one of his famous unfinished sculptures. Because what you see there is that he's, he's still kind of stuck in the rock and he's trying to pull his head kind of out of the marble. And I like that because when, I, when you see David in all his beauty, you kind of miss how much work it must have taken to knock off all that marble 500 years ago before any power tools, just with a hammer and a chisel. And when Michelangelo was asked how he could do what he did, He said that he would stare at a piece of marble until he saw what was inside, and then he took his hammer and his chisel and he knocked off everything that didn't belong. That means Michelangelo looked at that huge piece of marble and he saw the magnificence and the perfection of David. And then he took his hammer and his chisel and he knocked off everything that didn't belong. And if that sculpture, David, could have felt something, it probably would have been a very, very painful experience while Michelangelo worked on him. But now he's been standing for 500 years in absolute magnificence, where people like me go just to walk around him and look at all that the artist had done. This is true. The only one who can look at you and see what you were made to be is God. 
And when God looks at you, he sees something absolutely magnificent. He sees something of of unbelievable worth that is to last for all of eternity where people will, will gather around and say, this is what God had in mind when he created a man, when he created a woman. And God, in all his abilities, is the only one who can take every single thing in your life and use it to knock off the parts of you that do not belong. God can use pain and God can use pleasure. And that's why Jesus can say, this man born blind was blind so the works of God might be displayed in him. That God is working to knock off the things in you so that you can become what he made you to be. That's what Romans 8.28 is all about. When uh, Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He doesn't say all things are good or all things feel good. He's saying that God can use all things to work together for your good, to make you into something of an eternal weight of glory. The last thing that Jesus is teaching the disciples and teaching us in the way that we see pain and suffering is that Jesus is saying, when I go to the cross, when I am crucified for you and resurrected, then that I make a promise to you that one day all pain, all sorrow, all suffering will be swallowed up by joy. Because that's the pattern of the cross. Friday, when Jesus was crucified, the disciples stood around and they thought this is the worst thing that has ever happened. They could not have been more grieved or in more pain. And then when Sunday came and they saw Jesus resurrected, all that pain was swallowed up in joy. It's like a woman giving birth. That a woman who who is in labor is in the most pain she may ever be in, and the moment the baby is born, all that pain is swallowed up in joy. And that's what Jesus promises us. Only Jesus offers sight. Not just to the man who was born blind, but only Jesus offers sight to you and to me as we go through this life and experience some of what we're going to experience. And some of you are in that place right now. And if you're a follower of Jesus, when you go through pain and suffering, because you know where it came from, that it wasn't God's design, but sin has brought this in and our sin has brought this in, that we never raise our fist at God and say, we don't deserve this. You owe us to create a place where we will be exempt from this suffering. But we also know, because of what Jesus did on the cross, that we are never being punished for our personal sin. And that means that suffering has a purpose. And that purpose is to create in you an eternal weight of glory. And that purpose comes with a promise that one day, all of your sorrow and all of your pain and all of your suffering will be swallowed up in joy. If you've been asking the question, why? And you've been bouncing back and forth between option A or option B. And Jesus comes to you this morning and says, I can open your eyes. I offer you sight. A way to see the why question, a way to see pain and suffering in a way you've never seen it before. 
and how I can use it to make you like me. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord Jesus, we come to you, and I am so, so grateful that you are one that through your suffering, we get to see suffering in a different way. That you came and experienced what we experienced, but by doing so, you gave us a different way to see the answer to the why question of why bad things happen. I pray for the people right now who are in particular pain. I pray that you would grant them uh, peace and strength and comfort, and that you would create in them, even through that pain, using that pain, uh, an eternal weight of glory where they become more of what you intended them to be. Help us, I pray, to be what you want us to be, to be followers of you and open our eyes even today. We pray this in your blessed name. Amen.